You know, one of the greatest means to learn something is through observing an example. I mean, this has been true in my life because a lot of what I've learned hasn't been because I've watched a lecture or because I've read a book or watched a video, but a lot of it's been by observing the life of another saint. And I think this is true in your lives, right? I'm still learning how to better serve Christ by observing the servants of Christ. I'm still learning how to be a good husband by observing other godly husbands. I'm still learning how to be a good father by observing other godly fathers. You know, just a few nights ago, I was talking with a brother, and uh, he's been in my life a long time, and I watched him raise his family when I was uh, young and single. I watched him how he dealt with his finances, and I thanked him because I learned so much just from his godly life and the way that he did that. There is just something very powerful about a godly example that teaches you in a way that other methods just can't teach you. But what can we do if we don't have a whole lot of good examples around us? Thankfully, as believers in Christ, even when we might have a shortage of godly examples around us, the Bible presents one as a perfect example in all things the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many things that we learn by observing his godly life in the scriptures. For instance, we're called to forgive by following the example of Christ, right? Colossians 3.13 says, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. It's by looking at the life of Christ. We're called to clothe ourselves with humility by following the example of Christ. Philippians 2 says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We learn humility by looking at Christ and his example. We're called to endure suffering with joy by following the example of Christ. 1 Peter 3 says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing for what is wrong. Why? For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why can you endure suffering? Because you look at the Son, and that is exactly what he did for our well-being. We learn so much just by observing the life of Christ. And today... We're going to look at another way that we can learn from Christ's example, and we're going to be looking at the prayer life of Jesus. Now, Jesus clearly taught us how we ought to pray. In Luke 11, the disciples observed Jesus in prayer, and they were so moved by his example that the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray, right? And that's a great text, and we're not going to go through that today. But there's much more we can learn by looking at the prayer life of Jesus. And one lesson that becomes abundantly evident in observing Christ's life is the priority of prayer. So the title of today's message is this, Follow Jesus' Priority of Prayer. And we're going to be looking at five reasons why we ought to prioritize prayer in our lives. And here's the first one. First... Prioritize prayer in order to commune with God. Prioritize prayer in order to commune with 
God. And we see this portrayed very early in Christ's life. Turn to Luke 2. This is the only account that we have in the Gospels of Christ's early life. Luke 2. Now, this isn't specifically a prayer passage, but we're going to see this priority of communing with God. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, it says this. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey and they began looking for him among the relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? All right, so parents, can you relate to this story? Have you ever forgotten your child somewhere? Yeah, so we, we get this. But this situation is a little bit more intense than just being late picking up your child from soccer practice, right? The story tells us that they had already went a day's journey back. It was a day before they realized that they had actually forgotten Jesus. Then it says, after three days, they found him in the temple. So what we have is four days missing. Your child is missing for four days. That's... That's enough to make it to the milk carton, right? That's worry time, right? So Jesus was missing for around four days. How worried would you be if you couldn't find your child for that long? And how did Jesus respond to Mary and Joseph when they finally find him in the temple? He says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, as a parent, I have to admit, this gets to me sideways a little bit, right? Because I think in my flesh, I might respond, well, don't you know I'm going to have to give you a whooping for making me worry, right? But it's good to remember that Scripture says Jesus was sinless, and so he's sinless in this situation. So even here, his response is the right response, he says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Literally in the Greek, it means, did you not know that I had to be in the things of my father? Young Jesus was saying that Mary and Joseph should not have been surprised that he was spending time at the temple. Because they should have known and understood his calling as Messiah. And indeed, they did understand that. Remember at Jesus' conception an angel visited both Mary and Joseph to tell them who this would be. This would be the one who would save his people from their sins. This would be the Messiah. They should have understood Jesus must be about his father's business. Now, in Jewish terms, at 12 years old, 
Jesus would have been beginning to make this transition into this adult responsibility under the law. So what it seems like is Jesus was naturally taking more responsibility to learn of his calling as Messiah through the scriptures. So he's at the temple. You know, but being at the temple in those days was more than just speaking with the rabbis. The temple was also a place of sacrifice. It was a place of prayer. It would have been customary for there to be the observation of sacrifices and prayer three times a day, in the morning, in the afternoon, and at nightfall. So not only would young Jesus be learning from the Torah, from the rabbis, but he would have been spending time communing with his father in prayer at the temple. Now think about this for a second. Just say if your father was in a special trade and you were being called to take over for him one day, what would be the best way for you to know how to do that? Well, you could take a class, you could learn from books, but what would be the best way? Spend time with your father. Observe him, be with him, commune with him, right? What better way could Jesus do as Messiah than to be in communion with his father through prayer? This would have been naturally what 12-year-old Jesus would have been doing in the temple, being about his father's business. So let me ask you, saint, aren't you called to be about your father's business? Aren't you his? Aren't you be called to be about his mission in the world? So why prioritize praying? Praying so you might commune with your father the way Jesus did. Aren't you called to be about his business? Aren't you called to take up his great enterprise of the gospel work in the world by making disciples of all nations? Then you must be with him and you must speak with him. And this is what Jesus learned in his early life. And if this is what Jesus knew early, that to be Messiah, he must be with his father. How much more us, that we need to spend time with our father. Now, what does that look like lived out? There are a number of ways, but how about when you wake up in the morning, rather than immediately rolling out of bed, jumping in the shower, starting the day's routine, maybe you spend time to thank God for a good night's rest. Maybe you can start out by praying, God, today is a new day to live for you. I am thankful that I've been bought by the precious blood of Christ and that I'm reminded that I'm not my own. I want to start today just being reminded that I'm to be about your glory and your business today. So help me to commune with you right now. Help me to draw near to you through prayer and the word. Let me about, be about your kingdom in the way that I live today. That's what that looks like. So prioritize prayer in order to commune with your Father, in order to commune with God. So we need to be praying in order to commune with God, but we also need to pray in order to be equipped to do the work that God has for us, to be equipped for the work God has for us. So second on your notes, prioritize prayer to be filled with the Spirit to do God's work. 
prioritize prayer to be filled with the Spirit to do God's work. And we see this portrayed in Jesus' prayer at his baptism. Looking at Luke chapter 3 now, it says in verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now Jesus' baptism is recorded in three of the four Gospels, but Luke's account here is the only account in which we see that Jesus was praying at his baptism. Now why would Jesus be praying at his baptism? Well, if we think about it, this event is a special event. This event is, marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It was the inauguration of his ministry work as the Messiah. If you turn for a second to Matthew 3, it gives us a little bit more background of why Jesus is being baptized. Matthew 3, verse 13, says this, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Verse 15, But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So John the Baptist was understandably confused why Jesus wanted to be baptized by him. The center of John's ministry was the proclamation of this one, to make ready the way of the Lord. He preached that after him was coming someone who is mightier than he, who sandaled that he's unworthy to untie. So John viewed himself as a servant to Jesus, a servant to Christ. So how could Jesus be possibly asking him to baptize? He asked, John asked, I have need to be baptized by you. So do you come to me? And how does Jesus answer? Well, he tells us, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's a lot packed in that statement. Jesus didn't deny that this was strange, okay? It, wasn't, it was strange for him to request to be baptized by John. Why? Because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was calling people to turn away from their sin and turn to God. But Jesus is what? The sinless one. So Jesus made clear why he was being baptized. It was not to repent of any sins that he had of his own. No, it was to fulfill all righteousness. He had begun his ministry to fulfill his messianic role, to fulfill all righteousness as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Do you see that? Jesus would have to live a perfect righteousness so that he could impute to you that perfect righteousness so you could stand before God. That's what he's doing right here. He starts it right here. Paul puts it this way in Galatians, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that, he might, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is Jesus' messianic work. He was purposely born under the law, so he fulfilled everything he needed to as a righteous Jew, as a righteous person in the eyes of God. And what's he doing? He's earning your goodness. He's earning your righteousness that he could grant to you. Amazing. So this baptism was this inauguration that points forward to the ministry that he would fulfill as Messiah, as our deliverer, as our redeemer. He's starting it right here. And this is why Jesus felt the need to pray. I know what I'm doing in this moment. And so I need to go to my father in order to undergo this mission, he knew he needed help from the Father. He knew that as a man, he would need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we can assume that Jesus was praying for what this special moment was meaning. He was praying for the help of his Father and the power of the Spirit to embark on his redemptive work as Messiah. And we see the Father's answer. After his prayer, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, that, that voice, even though it's one sentence, the father's voice, he is, he is crowning his son. He is verifying his son as Messiah. The Jews listening to this would have hearkened back to two different places in the Old Testament. The first thing that the voice, the Father's voice says is, you are my son. It would have made them think of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, verse 6, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's that great psalm that speaks of this king that the Father installing. And it's not just his king, but it's his son. And it's this Christ who's being baptized right before their eyes. And then he says, in which I am well pleased. That would have hearkened them back to Isaiah 42, where God speaks of his servant. Isaiah 42, one says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul Delights. There it is, that pleasure. I am pleased with him. My soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So by the Father's words, he's proclaiming Jesus to be his son, the chosen king, as well as the spirit-filled servant of his. That's why Jesus prayed. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was embarking on. So what does he do? He beseeches his father. Now, we realize that we're not the Messiah. Jesus alone had that work to fulfill all righteousness. But we shouldn't miss the point that though Jesus is sinless, though he's fully righteous, though he's the perfect servant to do exactly what God wants him to, this didn't stop him from praying. So how much more we 
who are unrighteous, we who are not perfect servants, we need to pray to God for help and empowerment by the Holy Spirit for the work he has for us to do. If Jesus felt the need to pray, how much more we should be praying? Aren't we told that we were made for in his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in him? So how can we possibly do that? How can we possibly walk in the good works that God has gave us unless we have empowerment by the Holy Spirit? We will be able to walk in the good works God made for us only when God gives us help and only when he empowers us by the Spirit. So we need to ask him in prayer. We must go to him. Now you would agree that God's called every believer to make disciples of all nations. Amen? And that involves proclaiming the truth of the gospel to sinners. That's our calling. That's the good works we must walk in. Now, notice what Spurgeon says about how, when we share this with people, how helpless we are. This is Spurgeon. He says this, I shall not attempt to teach a tiger the virtues of vegetarianism, but I shall as hopefully attempt that task as I would to try to convince an unregenerate man of the truths revealed by God concerning sin and righteousness and judgment to come. These spiritual truths are repugnant to carnal man, and the carnal mind cannot receive the things of God. Gospel truth is diametrically opposed to fallen nature. And if I have not a power much stronger than that which lies in moral persuasion or in my own explanations and arguments, I have undertaken a task in which I am of sure defeat, except the Lord endow us with power from on high, our, our labor must be in vain, and our hopes must end in disappointment. Do you see what he's saying? You have a work to do, don't you? As God's people, as ones left here to bring the gospel to the world, and we are totally helpless on our own unless we have what? God's power the power of the Spirit to help us to move in an, a hardened heart. We, we won't be able to do anything. So how much more we must prioritize prayer. So what does this look like lived out in our lives? How about before you embark on that ministry night or before you seek to share the gospel with somebody, maybe you pray, Dear Father, my desire is to seek your kingdom first, and I'm, I'm about to serve you through the gifts that you have given me. I realize that apart from your help and the empowerment of the Spirit, I will not be able to do anything of everlasting worth. So help me abide in Jesus right now as I serve you. Would you fill me with your spirit to proclaim your gospel with clarity and with power? Would you please help me walk in the good works you have prepared for me today so that you would receive the glory in my life? That's what this looks like. That's how we should pray. So prioritize prayer to be filled with the spirit to do God's work. So we pray to commune with God. 
We pray to be filled with the Spirit for God's work, but we pray also in order to battle temptation. We pray in order to battle temptation. So third on your notes, prioritize prayer in order to battle temptation. In order to battle temptation. And we see this portrayed in Jesus' prayer and fasting when he was tempted in the wilderness. Now, if we're not paying attention to the whole unfolding story of the Bible, we might miss the kind of moment that this is. This is an epic event in this celestial struggle of Satan to defeat the Messiah. This is a huge deal right here. It's a huge deal because ever since the fall of man, Satan has been in pursuit of a way to defeat Christ. If you remember, in God's judgment of the serpent at the garden, the serpent who was Satan, right? This is what God said. This was his judgment. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What was God saying? He was telling Satan that there's coming a day when he would be utterly defeated. And ever since that day, Satan was pursuing this one to make sure that this wouldn't happen. Ever since then, Satan had been out to defeat and destroy this seed of the woman. Let me just give you a couple of highlights through redemptive history. Satan tried to stop the seed in Cain's murder of his brother Abel. But God allowed Seth to be born. Satan tried to stop the seed in corrupting the world with sin Yet God allowed Noah and his family to be preserved through the flood judgment. Satan tried to stop the seed in uniting the known world under one language and purpose at the Tower of Babel. Yet God confused the language and he chose one man, Abraham, to carry his promise. Satan tried to stop the seed by using Esau's hatred to murder his brother Jacob. But God strived with Jacob to humbly reconcile him with his brother. Satan tried to stop the seed by using Pharaoh to kill every male Hebrew child in Egypt, but God intervened by delivering and raising up Moses. Satan tried to stop the seed by using Athaliah to destroy all the royal offspring of the house of Judah, but God allowed one boy to stay hidden in the temple for six years. And Joash was spared to carry on the line. Satan tried to stop the seed through a man named Haman, who decreed to kill all the Jews. But God used Esther and Mordecai to spare the nation. See, Satan's been doing this since the very beginning. And now we see the very showdown between them right here. Because here in the gospel, the seed has come. Christ has arrived. And they're facing off. And Satan sees the seed as a man. And the man Christ Jesus. This is of epic proportions. This is the showdown to end all showdowns. 
So in Matthew 4.1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, when you think of the Spirit's leading, you think of him leading you into good things, right? Things like leading you into blessing, into peace, into obedience, into glory. But here we see the Spirit's primary purpose. He led Jesus into the wilderness for what? The express purpose of him being exposed to Satan's temptations. If Jesus would be the conquering Messiah for us, he'd have to overcome Satan's temptations. And I believe that Jesus knew this showdown was coming. He understood what his role would be as the Messiah. He knew that Satan was hungry to prevent him from doing his father's will. He knew what he was called to do in his three-year ministry. He was supposed to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery to sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed, Isaiah 61. And that Satan would try to stop him at every corner. So what did Jesus do in preparation? He knew this was coming. What did he do to prepare? Did he call a legion of angels to defend him? Did he arm himself with spiritual relics to protect him? Did he engage in some fantastical spiritual warfare by binding and rebuking demons? Nope. What did he do? He prayed and he fasted. And this would be a huge encouragement to you, saint. You know why? Because you can't engage in great spiritual warfare by calling a legion of angels, and you, can't, you don't have the authority to bind demons, but you can fast and pray. You can fast and pray. And this is what Jesus did for this moment. Luke 4.1 says, Jesus, full of this Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness, For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Notice, when did the devil begin to assault Jesus with his temptations? It was when he was weak in his body, right? Satan came to Jesus by appealing to his human weakness. He was hungry. But Satan made the mistake in that he thought Jesus would be susceptible because he was physically weak. But he had overlooked something very important. He overlooked the fact that Jesus was prayed up. Jesus had just spent 40 days and 40 nights in prayer and in fasting. Maybe Jesus was physically weak for sure, but he was spiritually sharpened by his discipline and his dependence upon God. Therefore, we see the result. Jesus was sharpened and ready to meet his foe. Jesus masterfully pulls from his arsenal of God's word, which he had no doubt been meditating upon, and he was able to defeat each of the devil's attempts. Why? Because he was prayed up, saint. Because he spent time with his father. Don't you need to be prayed up 
Don't you need this? It was Jesus, filled and led by the Spirit and sharpened by the spiritual discipline of prayer, fasting, and meditation on the Word, which made him stand invulnerable to Satan's attempts. But you notice in Luke 4.13 that it's not over. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. The battle was not over. This was just the beginning. So Jesus, you see throughout his life, he gets away with his father to pray because temptations would return. Now, this has to be stated again. If the sinless Savior, filled and led by the Holy Spirit, still felt that he must pray in order to face the temptation of Satan... How much more we must pray. We who struggle with sin, we who are more susceptible to Satan's temptation, how much more we need to pray. Like Christ, are you preparing through prayer right now to face temptation that's in store for you tomorrow? You know, I think the reason that we don't pray before temptation is because we often misuse prayer to just ask for that which gives us comfort. This is John Piper. Listen to what he says about this. I have often said that one of the reasons we feel so weak in our prayer lives is that we have tried to make a domestic intercom out of a wartime walkie-talkie. Prayer is not designed as an intercom between us and God to serve the domestic comforts of the saints. It is designed as a walkie-talkie for spiritual battlefields. It's the link between active soldiers and their command headquarters with its unlimited firepower and air cover and strategic wisdom. Amen? Prayer is not meant to be like, click, hey God, could you get me that iced tea? It is a wartime walkie-talkie to say, God, I'm in the midst of the battle. Help me. Give me power from on high to speak to this person who's hardened. Give me power from on high to deal with this temptation that I'm feeling right now. Give me power from on high to deal with this trial that I'm in, this persecution that I'm in. That's what this is for. So don't you need to prioritize prayer to prepare for your temptations. What does this look like lived out? How about before you face the temptations from the world or your own flesh, you spend time praying, Father, I know I'm about to face a very hectic day where I'm going to be tempted by my own sinful flesh and tempted by the pleasures of this world. I ask that you would please protect me from falling prey to them. Keep me from being led into sin. Remind me that your son, the Lord Jesus, is sweeter and more delightful than any sin. Help me to be filled up with his fullness. Fill my mind with your truth to defend against sin's temptations and help me walk in your everlasting way. Allow me to live upright in the world so that they will see you living powerfully through me. That's what this looks like. We need to prioritize prayer in order to battle temptation. So we pray to commune with God, 
to be filled up with the Spirit for God's work, to battle temptation, but we pray to help us make important decisions. We pray to help us make important decisions. So fourth, prioritize prayer to help you make decisions. And we see this in Jesus' life when he prayed before choosing the disciples. Turn now to Luke 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Now this is one of the many times recorded in scripture that Jesus got away alone in order to pray. And it's clear here what he's praying for, right? He's about to choose the 12. He's about to assemble the Avengers, right? This is who it was going to be. When you think from a strictly human perspective, what kind of men would you want to lead this movement? Now, before you even answer that in your brain, think at what's at stake here. What's at stake in the choosing of these men, okay? These men will be the men who will carry the message of the gospel after Jesus ascends from earth. These will be the men who will guide the young church through persecution and trial. These will be the men who navigate against the onslaught of false teaching and worldly influence. These will be the men who are made responsible to wield amazing, miraculous power to do signs and wonders. These are the men upon whom are hinged the flourishing of Christ's church and God's salvation reaching the ends of the earth. There is no more important task than this one. What kind of men do you want? You would want the most dynamic speakers. You would want the wisest strategists. You would want the most knowledgeable religious men. You would want the most business-savvy advertisers. This was a huge decision that Christ was making. So what did Jesus do? He went away to pray. The text says he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Jesus knew the task at hand was bigger than any group of men. If these men were going to succeed, they would need the intervention of the Father. God would need to shape these men and into fit shepherds and leaders. So Jesus prayed all night. And what was the result of Jesus' prayer? He chose his men. They were men that didn't look like much. There were a few disciples of John, the Baptist, a couple of fishermen, a tax collector, a doubter, a zealot, and eventual traitor. But these were the men God would use to fulfill his will. And the fact that you and I are here today worshiping in a church that loves Jesus Christ as our Savior and calls God our Father, those men were successful. <laughs> 
They did it. God took men who had very little to offer. They were just committed, faithful, humble, and teachable. And the Father built Christ's church upon them. And that was the power of Jesus praying. Wow. Now, if Jesus, who is all-wise and the greatest shepherd who ever lived upon the earth, if he needed prayer in choosing the disciples, how much more we need to pray in our decisions. You are faced with decisions on a daily basis. You know, some of them big, some of them small. Here are some of the big ones, right? What will I do for a living? Where will I live? How will I serve God? Who will I marry? How will I raise my children? Right? These are huge questions, and we are inadequate to answer these in our own power. We must be committed to pray. Like Jesus, we must prioritize prayer in our decisions. So what does this look, look like lived out? When you're faced with an important decision, start with prayer. Start with prayer. Pray this way. God, I have a very important decision coming up, and I do not want to presume the answer without you. Please lead me to the right resources to bring me to the answer that most glorifies you. Use your word to instruct me. Use mature and experienced saints in my life to counsel me. Help show me your will through my desires as I walk obediently to you. I want to be like Jesus when he prayed before choosing the 12. Help me to persist in asking you until you make your way clear. Let me make the decision that will be best for your glory and for my good. That's what this looks like. We must prioritize prayer to help make decisions. So we pray to commune with God. We pray to be filled with spirit for God's work. We pray to battle temptation. We pray to guide us in our decisions. But lastly, we need prayer for daily strength and purpose. So fifth on your notes, prioritize prayer for God's daily strength and clarity of purpose. Prioritize prayer for God's daily strength and clarity of purpose. And we see this in Jesus' life when he was faced with daily busy ministry. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Mark 1. Now Mark is the gospel which portrays, portrays Jesus always on the move. I don't know if you know what one of Mark's favorite words are in this gospel. Anybody know? That's right. Look at that. This church is built up. Amen. Immediately, right? Because this is Jesus, the servant on the move. He's, he's working the works of Messiah. The accounts quickly move from one action to another because Mark wrote this in order to portray Jesus as the great servant of God at work. And the key verse to Mark is 1045, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And, that, and here in Mark 1, we read of a typical day of ministry in the life of Christ. Our text that we're going to be looking at is Mark 1, look at verse 35. 
In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went up away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Well, the first thing we need to notice is the context of this prayer that Jesus has. Jesus is coming off of an extremely busy ministry day. Okay, let me recount it for you a little bit. The day, the day before, began at the synagogue of Capernaum, and people were amazed at the way that Jesus taught with authority, back in chapter 1, verse 21. At the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus served that man by casting the demon out of him. After that, they went to Peter's mother-in-law's house, where she was sick with a fever, So Jesus healed her, and then it started some commotion. Seeing that Jesus was there healing many people in the town, they started to bring all who were ill, all who were demon-possessed, and they were at Peter's mother-in-law's doorway. It says this in Mark 132, When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were were demon-possessed, And the whole city had gathered at the door. Now picture that. Jesus was already busy all day with ministry. And he thinks he might be all done. And then he steps out the door of this house. And he sees the whole city there with a bunch of sick people and a bunch of demon-possessed people. And it describes it as like the whole city is there. Wow. Ministry had gone all day. And now with the sun setting, all of Capernaum was at the door of Peter's mother-in-law's house. And we don't know when Jesus was able to finish ministry that day. We don't even know how much sleep that Jesus got, but we can bet that it wasn't a whole lot. He was ministering all day and most likely all night. Now coming off of a ministry day like that, what would you do? Yeah, I need a day off. I am beat. I am doing nothing today. I earned a break, right? And there is reason for us to get rest. We do need that. I don't want to speak against that. We do need rest. But notice what Jesus does. What do we see Jesus do in verse 35? In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, And went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Amazing. What an amazing Savior we have. You see, while we would be tempted to take a break from all things ministry, Jesus takes up to pray. If the Lord Jesus, who is fully sinless and righteous, sees the necessity to pray in the midst of ministry, how much more we must be praying. Christ being busy pressed in by so many responsibilities, did not cause him to neglect his private prayer to his father. Instead, he intensified his prayer. Now, where does he go? While it was still dark, when, when did he go? It was still dark. It's probably sometime before 5 a.m. because it was long before the sun came up. Where did he go? Jesus didn't just find a quiet place in Peter's mother-in-law's house. He didn't even just go somewhere within the town. He went to a secluded place and was praying there. 
Now notice what Jesus didn't do. And I am convicted, just as you are. He did not just take five or ten minutes out of the day to go over a few in his prayer list. He didn't just pray when it was most convenient for him. Jesus set aside time early in the morning. And more than that, he made every effort to go somewhere where he would not be interrupted or bothered for this very important and solemn spiritual discipline. He committed himself to pray. Pastor H.B. Charles said this about Jesus in this moment. Jesus started his day with prayer. You should start your day with prayer if you want God to be obviously present, actively in charge, and dynamically at work throughout the remainder of the day. Prayer must be a matter of discipline and sacrifice, not a matter of convenience. Man, that hits me right in the gut. So we know Jesus is praying coming off of a very busy day and a tiring day of ministry, but he does not use that as an excuse to slack from communing with his Father. But we also notice something else. Jesus is not praying in response to any ministry crisis. He's coming off of a very successful day of ministry. Everything is going great for him. Man, don't we tend to reserve prayer for the times that we think we really need something? Don't we reserve prayer uh, when there's some crisis that kind of push us to finally pray? Like that's our, 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 our final thing that we have to do? Well, that's not the way Jesus prayed. Jesus didn't just pray to response to crisis. He didn't just pray to get things in emergency. Jesus knew he needed fresh strength and perspective from God every day. He prayed even though everything was going well. He didn't lean on grace for yesterday. He sought new grace for today. What a rebuke that is to us, isn't it? If Jesus prays this way, how much more we must be praying, even when things are going well. May God help us not to neglect our needed and essential time of prayer. Now look at Mark Chapter 1, verse 36. What happens after this? Jesus is gone praying. Now sun rises, right? Mark 1, 36. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. So when the sun rises, the disciples wake up. They find that all of Capernaum has returned in order to be healed and witness Christ's signs and wonders. And then they start looking around for Jesus and they say, I can't find him. They lost Jesus. So as a result, they create this search party to find where Jesus is. And it doesn't say how long they were looking for him, but it probably took them a long time because where's Jesus? In a secluded place. He purposely does not want to be found. So it probably took them a while before he got, they got to them, him. Now, in Simon's response, there's a little bit of attitude there, right? Everyone's looking for you, right? you got to read between the lines a little bit. Put on your sanctified imagination. If you read between the lines, you see they're saying, Jesus, you're not where you're supposed to be. Now, why do you think they're so concerned that he be back at Capernaum? 
Well, if you think the best of them, you think, well, they care about the people, right? They want them to be served. But I think there might be a little bit of the fame. Because this is early in Jesus' ministry. He claims himself to be Messiah. And the apostles are like, finally, Jesus, you're getting the recognition that comes with being who you are. This is great. Ministry's rolling. We need to keep this thing going. Right? Pastor H.B. Charles, he says, the apostles respond more like church growth people than apostles. They are saying, let's ride this wave of fame, Jesus. And if so, you could be king in a month. Let's get going. Right? So we see that. We know that. We would act that way too. It's our flesh. But how did Jesus respond? How did Jesus respond? Verse 38. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Whoa. Different response, isn't it? Jesus was telling them, I'm not going back to Capernaum. I'm not going back to the fame that you think I need. I'm going to Galilee to preach. Now, why that response? Because prayer had clarified and solidified his purpose. Jesus was not interested in being famous. His calling as Messiah was not to make him popular, but to proclaim the gospel to the lost. And so as Jesus rose from his prayer, rose from his time with his father, he was filled with this resolve to complete his calling. He had new resolve to do exactly what the Father wanted him to do. Isn't that what you need? Isn't that what you need? Do you need daily strength for new grace for what God's called you to do today? Do you need clarity? Do you need resolve to do God's will? Then you must pray, saint. It was Jesus' private devotions that fueled his public ministry. Let it be your daily private devotions that fuel your ministry to the glory of Christ. We need this. So let me ask you, when is the last time you sacrificed something important to you in order to pray? When was the last time you separated yourself from others in order to focus on time with God? When is the last time you spent a long extended time in prayer? When is the last time your prayer turned into a meaningful time of worship? And I'm preaching to myself, saints. Are you willing to exercise self-denial in order to pray this way? Are you willing to say no to the TV to do this? Are you willing to say no to outings with friends? Are you willing to say no to hobbies you enjoy so that you can say yes to the priority of prayer? This is what Jesus did. He did this to be the Messiah that we need. Aren't you willing to do the same to live for him? Prioritize prayer for God's daily strength and clarity of purpose. So 
I pray that today you saw the powerful example in the life of Christ of why we should prioritize prayer. Do you believe that you need to be about your father's business? Then be like Christ and commune with your father in prayer. Do you believe you need to be filled with the spirit in order to do your father's work? Then be like Christ and seek power in the spirit through prayer. Do you believe you need help and protection in your battle with temptation? Then be like Christ and pray to prepare yourself for war. Do you believe you need wisdom to make decisions in your life? Then be like Christ and pray for guidance and wisdom to make those right choices. Do you believe God's daily, you need God's daily strength and clarity of purpose? Then be like Christ and commit to pray, seeking grace for another day of service and resolve to do God's will. And I will add on this. This is a spiritual gut shot, you know, because we fail at this so often. But there is sweetness that Jesus paid it all so that we can do this. Jesus made a way so that we could call Father, Abba, and come to him at any time. And the expectation in Hebrews is that we can come to the throne at any time. There's this sweetness and delight in going to him. So yes, we may be convicted to pray, but don't forget there is delight in the coming. There's delight in the going to the Father. So may we do that in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for letting us see your son in his daily life. And what we see is he is a man, the God-man at prayer. And Lord, that convicts us because we know as much as he needed to pray and be with you, God, we need that. So Lord, would you work in us, help us to do this. Forgive us for times where we've neglected our prayer life with you. We realize now that we need you. We can do nothing without you. And we want to be with you. It is our delight. So God, work upon us. Change us from within. God, as we do Come, become faithful to meeting with you. May you be um, faithful to us in filling us up and giving us new resolve, granting new grace for today, empowering us against temptation and enabling us to do the work that you've called us to do. Lord, work upon us and may you receive glory from our lives. Bless our day together. Thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.